Section 9 of Early Rome by Wilhelm Ina. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 4 Examination of the Legends of the Kings, Part 2. Not only laws and customs, but also the names and characteristics of localities supplied the materials for etiological myths. In the Roman Forum, there was a spot called Lacus Curtius marked by a peculiar pavement or an enclosure. According to a statement preserved by Varro, this spot was struck by lightning in the year 445 B.C., and Curtius, one of the consuls of the year, enclosed it by order of the Senate. This is in all probability the true account. But it was either forgotten or it did not satisfy the popular fancy. Accordingly, a more striking story was invented. Once upon a time, the earth opened in the forum, and no efforts would avail to close it. Then the soothsayers declared that the gods of death demanded the life of the bravest citizen, whereupon Curtius mounted his charger and, fully armed, leapt into the gulf, which instantly closed upon him. Hence the spot where the chasm had been was called the Curtian Lake. Here was an evident miracle, but some rational analyst who was above the faith in childish miracles wanted sober, sensible facts which could be given out as historical. So he set to work and related how that in the war between Romulus and Titus Tatius, a certain Sabine horseman named Curtius, charging the Romans, plunged into and was with difficulty extricated from a swamp in the valley between the two hills where afterwards the forum was laid out. After this Sabine warrior, the spot was named forever afterwards the Lake of Curtius. It would be useless to enumerate and discuss all the ideological myths of which the history of the kings is full. They all bear the same character and are easily stripped of their deceitful historical mask and exhibited in their own fabulous hollowness. Some of the liveliest and most attractive portions of the early annals of Rome are stories of Greek origin smuggled in at a time when Greek slaves and poets began to flatter their Roman patrons, either by trying to connect the early history of the two nations, or by adorning the dry and barren waste of the Roman annals with flowers culled in the luxurious gardens of their own imagination. These Greek stories are easily detected, not only from their intrinsic character, but because we can sometimes point out the very spot in the literature of Greece from which they were taken. The story of the Tarquinii especially is enlivened by such contributions from Greek fiction. The stratagem by which Sextus, the son of Tarquin, gained the confidence of the people of Gabii is copied from Herodotus, who relates it of Zopyrus and Darius. The dumb message sent by Tarquin to his son at Gabii giving him to understand that he should cut off the heads of the foremost men, is identical with one which, according to the same author, was sent by Thrasybulus, the tyrant of Miletus, to his friend Periander of Corinth. The embassy to the Delphian oracle is another instance of Greek fiction mixed up with Roman annals, for how could the Romans have consulted Greek oracles more than two hundred years before even the name of Rome was heard in Greece? but a legend far more intimately connected with the most essential part of Roman story than the anecdotes just referred to is no doubt an importation from Greece, namely 
the legend of the miraculous birth and preservation of romulus and remus we have already had an opportunity of remarking that the deities of the roman pantheon were not invested like those of the greek myths with human forms and attributes at least it may be affirmed that the faculty of personifying their gods was possessed by the romans only in a rudimentary condition they looked upon the gods as either male or female it is true but there is no trace of a roman theogony of a roman olympus where the gods lived in the fashion of men marrying and begetting children all the myths therefore which tell of the loves of the gods in a human form may be suspected of being borrowed from greece hence the apparition of mars in full armour to the affrighted vestal and his becoming the father of romulus and remus are features which betray the greek origin of the legend the wonderful preservation of the exposed children especially the suckling by the she-wolf are features clearly taken from similar myths which appear to have been numerous in greece and the east and of which that of the infant cyrus afterwards king of persia is a type from the same source sprung the story of the apotheosis of romulus for though the romans worshipped the spirits of the departed as divine beings able to bless or to hurt the living yet they were ignorant of the genuine hero-worship which filled the greek cities with shrines and sepulchres of local deities supposed to be sprung from a mortal race whatever we may think of the origin of these myths whether they are as we suppose imported from greece or whether they grew on italian soil nobody will deny that they are myths or pretend that they contain even a residuum of genuine historical traditions we now come to another force which has been active in the formation of the legendary history of the roman kings and which is due to the poverty of imagination characteristic of the roman people to which we have already referred not endowed with a fertile fancy enough to invent stories sufficient to fill the period of two hundred and forty years the roman pontiffs or whoever drew up the first systematic plan of the earliest history multiplied events by varying the detail of the same original story and relating the different versions successively it is possible that before the first attempt at a systematic arrangement of the details which make up the history of the kings these details were separately current as conceptions which different people had formed independently of one another about the primeval period the compilers thereupon made use of as much as suited their purpose adjusting and fitting the materials so as to fit a plausible story consistent in itself and free from palpable contradictions but their success was not great as shown above they could not even assign the proper place to the political and to the religious lawgiver in their endeavour to attribute to each of the kings some peculiar policy which might fill his reign they were driven to represent a whole generation of romans as destitute of the fundamental religious institutions other defects in the story may easily be discovered those which refer to the chronology have been already pointed out but the repetition of the same facts under a slight disguise of different names and circumstances is perhaps the most decisive proof of the flimsiness of that web which is so fair to look at but which falls to pieces as soon as it is touched by the hand of criticism we will give a few specimens it cannot have escaped 
the most careless reader that there is a great resemblance between Romulus and Tullus Hostilius. They are both warlike, both double the number of Roman citizens, the one by union with the Sabines, the other by the reduction of Alba. The war with Alba, again, has its prototype in the war with Titus Tatius. As Tullus Hostilius is opposed to Medius Fufetius, so under Romulus, Hostus Hostilius fights with Medius Curtius. The two Hostilii and Metii are so clearly identical that the addition of second names which is intended to disguise the identity cannot deceive us. Besides, Tullus, as well as Romulus, has grown up among shepherds. Both join Mount Caelius to the city. Both organize the Roman army. Both introduce the insignia of regal power, the cella curulis or chair of state, the lictors, and the embroidered toga. Both degenerate into tyrants, and finally both are removed from earth amidst thunder and lightning, and are seen no more. The similarity thus apparent between Romulus and Tullus Hostilius has its counterpart in the stories of Numa and Ancus. The latter is evidently the shadow of the former. Both are essentially priests. The former nominates a high pontiff, Numa Marcius, to whom he confides the sacred books. Evidently, this Numa Marcius, who combines the names of the two kings, is a creature of the same fiction which represented the founder of the Roman worship as a sacerdotal king. As Numa's reign had been emphatically peaceful, he could not be made to establish the religious ceremonies to be observed in declaring war. Consequently, this task was given to Ancus, and a war with the Latins was ascribed to him, which helped to make the stories of the two kings look different. Nevertheless, the original identity of Numa and Ancus is sufficiently apparent. Both are bridge-makers. Numa is Pontifex, as it was supposed from Pons Bridge and Facere to make, although the word denoted properly the priestly leader of a procession. And to Ancus is ascribed the construction of the wooden bridge over the Tiber. Finally, the two are the only kings who die a natural and peaceful death. The original identity of the first and second Tarquin need hardly to be demonstrated, but there are sufficient indications to show that they were also looked upon as the political and military lawgivers of Rome, in fact, that they were identical with Romulus and Tullus. Servius Tullius combines in himself the character of the two classes of Roman kings, who alternate in the analytic scheme of the primeval period. He is the author of social and peaceful order and of civil law like Numa, and he also introduces a military organization which makes him identical with Romulus. According to a casually preserved tradition, his birth was as miraculous as that of the founder of the city. His mother was a vestal virgin, and his father a god who appeared to her on the hearth, the domestic altar of which she had the charge. By this birth he is really characterized as the founder of the city, for it appears from other similar legends that Italian cities ascribe their origin as a rule to sons of Vestals and the gods of the hearth. It is generally supposed that the latter portion of the legendary history of Rome has a more historical character than the earlier. Scholars who are prepared to give up Romulus and Numa as fabulous beings, and who look upon Tullus and Ancus as prehistoric, would fain persuade themselves that the stories of Servius Tullius and the Tarquins contain a great deal of genuine historical truth. 
Unfortunately, this is an assumption which upon examination appears to be unfounded. If, on the whole, the family history of the Tarquinian dynasty has not so mythical a character as that of the preceding kings, it is perhaps even more full of arbitrary fiction and untrustworthy statements. We have referred already to the chronological absurdities which pervade it, and to the stories of foreign growth with which it is decked out. Nor is the supernatural element wanting. Not to speak of the miraculous birth of Servius, and the light which blazed round the head of the sleeping child, we see that the prophetic queen Tonaquil, the arrival in Rome of the weird Sibylla, and the stories of prodigies with which the narrative is interwoven are not of a character to give us more confidence. So much for the bona fide miracles. Let us see if the story shows more respect for the canons of historical probability than for physical laws. King Servius is represented as the author of the scheme which divided the people into five classes according to a property qualification and into 194 centuries as the subdivision of the classes. This is the celebrated constitution of centuries, the groundwork of the Centuriate Comitia of the people, which constantly adapted to the changing condition of the times, lasted to the end of the Republic. Now we are asked to believe on the strength of the fabulous story of the kings that Servius, having drawn up this elaborate scheme, was prevented by his sudden death, though he is reported to have reigned forty-four years, from actually bringing it into operation, that it remained a dead letter during the whole reign of Tarquin the Younger, and that upon his expulsion Brutus availed himself of this ready-made constitution to establish the Republic upon it. Although the people had never yet been called upon to meet in the Centuriate assemblies for electoral or legislative purposes, they fell in so readily with the political ideas of Servius that forthwith Centuriate Comitia could be held, the monarchy abolished by a vote of the people thus assembled, and the new Republican order started in all its completeness with two annual and responsible consuls instead of a king for life, and with the modifications of the old laws consequent upon the change. It need hardly be said that such a process is all but miraculous. History shows that constitutional changes which have any life in them, and are destined to last, are not concocted in the closet of a lawgiver, nor put into working order without much difficulty and opposition. The ease and facility with which Tarquinius is deposed at Rome, and the Republic established without bloodshed, resembles a genuine revolution as much as a military review or a sham fight resembles a genuine battle. How can we suppose that a powerful king like Tarquinius, without having suffered so far any check either at home or in foreign war, a king who is represented as acknowledged lord of Latium, and who after a time marshals all Latium against Rome, should be thus cast out of his kingdom, not in consequence of a long-prepared conspiracy and a powerful and organized opposition, but by a sudden and unexpected explosion of popular passion caused by an outrage committed not by the king himself but by one of his sons? And to enter into the detail of this alleged outrage, what can be more absurd than the dispute in the camp among the young princes concerning the domestic virtues of their wives, the night ride to Rome and Colatia, and all that follows? 
How, for instance, can it be supposed that Sextus did not know his cousin's wife until he saw her working late among her servants on this occasion? Lucretia's death may be a good subject for the epic or dramatic poet, but in the pages of sober history it is an idle tale. The foreign history of this period is not a whit more plausible or credible. We will select two portions, the war with Porsena and the Latin War, to show that our doubts are fully justified. If we succeed in this, it will hardly be necessary to subject the remainder of the story to a similar examination, for it will not be supposed likely that the earlier portions of the narrative deserve more credit than the later. The war with Porsena is among those parts of early Roman history which first attracted and justified the skepticism of modern scholars, and in truth the narrative in itself is so absurd and contradictory that even without any external testimony we may safely pronounce the events to be unreal. Porsena is represented as a great king of Etruria who undertakes a war for the purpose of restoring Tarquin to his throne. He drives the Romans into their city, lays siege to it, and compels the people by famine to sue for peace and actually to give hostages. Nevertheless, at the conclusion of the peace, no mention is made of the object for which the war was undertaken. Tarquinius is not brought back to Rome. Porsena disappears from the stage, proving in the end not an enemy, but a benefactor of the Romans, restoring the hostages, leaving the Romans his camp for public use, and giving them back the land on the right bank of the Tiber of which he had intended to deprive them. So much of contradiction is contained in the narrative of Livy. But this narrative seems colored in the interest of Roman vanity. Pliny has preserved a statement that Porsena in the Treaty of Peace forbade the Romans to use iron for any other purpose than agriculture. This statement, so humiliating to Roman pride, would not have been made if the fact of the subjugation of Rome by an Etruscan king had not been incontestable. The supremacy of this Etruscan king was, according to Dionysius, formally acknowledged by the Romans, inasmuch as they sent him the insignia of royalty, a scepter, a purple robe, and an ivory chair. It seems clear, therefore, that a war so successful could not have been a resultless episode of the struggle which the Romans had to make to maintain their independence. The War of Porsena, as it is described in the annals, if it be not a mere fiction, must belong to a different period. As for the detail with which the account of the war is filled, it is, if not miraculous, at least a poetical ornament, admirably suited for such lays as Macaulay has given us of ancient Rome, but not for a Roman history. The stout Horatius, who kept the bridge so well in the brave days of old, is a hero like the Homeric Ajax fighting with a host of Trojans to defend the Grecian ships. He reminds us suspiciously of the other Horatius, who fought as the champion of Rome in the time of King Tullus. The story of the undaunted Mucius Scaevola, who burnt his right hand and thus became left-handed, is apparently nothing but an attempt to explain the origin of the name Scaevola, which means left, and which was a surname of a branch of the Mucian house. Nor is it a very plausible fiction. The Etruscan king, seeing his soldiers receive their pay, the paymaster looking like the king, the Roman edging his way into the royal tent and, after all, striking the wrong man, the king lost in admiration of the stout-hearted Roman, 
and at the same time so terrified that he grants peace to the enemies whom he had conquered, all these are features of a story too childish to be tolerated in history. The War of Porsena must therefore be struck out of the annals which propose to recount the establishment of the Republic. The Latin War, which terminated with the Battle of Lake Regulus, is of a different character. It seems to be real and to have taken place about the time assigned to it, but its aim and object are entirely misstated and the detail is fictitious. We will endeavor to prove the first part of this assertion lower down when we review the historical residuum of the fables and traditions of this period. Here we will only direct attention to the perversion of truth and to the arbitrary fiction apparent in the vulgar narrative. The description given of the Battle of Lake Regulus is altogether poetical and seems almost copied from Homer. The leaders engage in single combat and perform feats of personal prowess. It is essentially a cavalry engagement. The infantry, in which we know that the strength of the Roman armies always consisted, goes for nothing. Victory is decided in the end by the charge of the Roman knights headed by the divine twins Castor and Pollux. This feature shows that the poetic coloring of the story is Greek, for the identical legend of aid given by Castor and Pollux in battle occurs in the annals of the Greek city of Locri in southern Italy. The time when the battle of Lake Regulus is fought is variously stated by various authors. It seems strange that if the battle was so decisive as is generally assumed, its date should be uncertain but we may entertain grave doubts about its decisiveness when we find that the Latins, who are reported to have been utterly crushed in it, concluded a league with Rome soon afterwards on a footing of equality. End of section 9